All right, so we have been looking at the Psalms, and we've covered Psalm 1, 2, and 3, and you go, are we going to be in here for 150 weeks in the Psalms? No. Um, <laughs> well, we could. Um, but today we're going to zoom over to, to chapter 5, or to Psalm 5, and I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to read through the psalm, but I'm going to zero in on one particular phrase. Okay, So here it is, Psalm 5, verses 1 through 12. To the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. And here comes the phrase we're going to zero in on. You hate all evildoers. Wow. All right, we're going we're gonna to zero in on that. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Verse 8, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsel. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover them with favor as with a shield. Now, realize that even just reading verse 5 is shocking to many people. Many, many people who have gone to church all their lives. In fact, there are some who've gone to churches all their life and they've never heard the word God and, or the word wrath and God and hate Ever. Their concept is simply God is love. Okay? Now, on the other hand, there may be some of you who were brought up in the opposite church environment where the wrath of God was the constant drumbeat, even, even over the potluck, you know. <laughs> may God strike you dead when, if, if you don't eat that cranberry delight the proper way. All right? 
love may have been spoken of and sung about, but the, the caveat is always don't get too comfortable with God. Okay? I teach Romans at Moody, and um, when we get to chapter 2, I ask the students, so let me ask you a question. The unbeliever. What is God's attitude toward the unbelieving sinner? Is it love or is it hate? And you know what their response is? Exactly your response. I don't know, you tell us. Okay? Does God love the sinner or hate the sinner? Now, imagine two students, one who goes to love church and another who goes to wrath church, discuss this question, okay? Does God love or hate the sinner? And the person from love church says, well, I don't know what's going on in the Psalms. Psalms are kind of wacky sometimes, but my favorite verse is John, 1 John 4, 8. God is love. That's all I know. God is love. And my favorite other verse is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So all I know is God is a God of love. Now the person from Wrath Church comes back and he says, but wait a minute. John the Baptist is the, the, Jesus said he was the greatest man of all time before Jesus came, and he, he paved the way for Jesus, and this was his message to the unbelievers. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, you slithering pile of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then the person from Love Church comes back. He goes, that's a good verse. I like that verse, but you know what verse I really like? I like in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. All right, so you're to love your enemies. Why? So that you may be, all right, and the idea is so you may reflect that you are sons of your Father who is in heaven. You don't hate your enemies, you should love your enemies because that's what God does. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. See, God loves enemies and he sends the son and he sends the rain upon them. So God is love. And the guy from Wrath Church comes back and he says, that's a good one. What about Ephesians 2, 3, which says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul's saying, before I became a believer, I was in with the rest of mankind. 
And we were children, objects of wrath. So, which is it? Well, Love Church guy comes back and he says, all I know is that God's heart breaks for the unbeliever. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing, not wanting that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, God, God has nothing but but dying love for the unbeliever. He doesn't want to send anyone to hell. And the guy from Wrath Church comes back and says, what about this? Jesus said to the unbelievers around him, you are of your father, the devil. Okay, so... It would, it would be interesting if this wasn't a sermon, but it was just a class. I'd have you break into little groups and discuss. So what, which is it? Does God love or hate the sinning unbeliever? Okay. What, what do we do with this tension in Scripture? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise four questions that this phrase seems to to stimulate, okay? Question number one, does God love the sinner or hate the sinner, okay? Now, um, I believe that this tension is brought together and resolved in Romans chapter two. In in Romans chapter two, after Paul talks about the coming judgment day in chapter one, In chapter 2, he looks at the religious hypocrite. He looks at the religious person who hasn't truly repented and come to Christ. And he combines both God's love and his wrath. And he says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So there we have God's kindness, forbearance, and patience. I would say it's his love. But don't presume upon his kind, loving patience. If you presume and you put off repenting, it says this, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The picture here is that the person who has not humbled himself and come to Christ and said, I'm a sinner and I I repent and I receive your salvation, there is a storage tank of wrath hanging over that person's head. But it's being held back by the patient, kind, loving hand of God. But one day, if the sinner doesn't repent, the patient, kind, loving hand of God will be removed. 
and they will experience the eternal wrath of God. So, a wrathless view of God and a loveless view of God are both wrong. Okay? God is lovingly holding back the wrath the sinner deserves. Okay? Now, when it says, or do you presume, okay, what is presuming? Well, presuming is when a person says, well, I think you're bluffing. I, I, I haven't experienced God pouring out his supposed wrath on me so far. I think all this talk about wrath and the cross is just bluffing. I'm good. I'm fine. Okay. You know, Peter warned us that that's what people's attitude would be, especially in the end times. He said, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Where is this second coming of Christ when he's going to pour out his wrath, right? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing to see here. Everything's fine. You guys keep talking about the second coming of Christ. Yeah, that's a big bluff. Okay, Peter warned us that that, that would be kind of a prevailing attitude in the end time. But scripture is clear. There is a day of wrath coming. Right now, though, is a time of loving patience where God is giving us time to repent. We won't be able to say, well, why didn't you warn me? He may actually pull out a calendar and show you July 2nd, 2023, you were all here when you heard the call to repent, right? Now, um, presuming, presuming upon the idea that, well, nothing's happened so far. You see this guy? His name is Harry Truman, not the president. Okay. This is uh, Harry Truman from the 1980. He, he was sitting there the year I graduated from high school. Okay. He lived, you see the mountain in the back? That's Mount St. Helens. And scientists were saying, that thing's going to blow any second now. But old Harry, he lived by that mountain all his life. And there's film footage of a reporter talking to him the day before Mount St. Helens blew. And they tried to convince him, Harry, you gotta, you gotta evacuate. We're all getting out of here today. And he said, yeah, the press is always blowing things out of proportion. And the next day, Mount St. Helens blew with the force of 1,500 Hiroshima bombs. In 22 seconds, he was dead. All things continue as they have always been. 
I don't buy your warning about the wrath of God. Okay. So, um, what is God's attitude toward the unbeliever? He is lovingly, patiently, compassionately holding back his wrath. But it will come. Meanwhile, don't, don't think it's a bluff. Right? Next question. Did you notice in the psalm, David is calling on God's vengeance upon his enemy? Is it okay for David to call on God for vengeance? Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. This is what you call an imprecatory psalm or an imprecatory prayer where the person praying it is asking God, will you bring justice upon this person who has harmed me? Remember, Jesus taught a little parable about a widow who had been harmed and she went to the judge and, and pleaded her case and he wouldn't listen to her. And she kept coming, kept coming, kept coming. And, and she said she was pleading for justice, pleading for justice before the judge. And then the, the point of the story is this. The judge says, she's driving me crazy. I'll give her justice. And he says, you know, in essence, Jesus is saying, God is not like that in that you have to nag him. But if you come to him and ask him for justice, he will bring about justice. It's okay to ask God to bring about justice. In fact, Paul is actually following, or Paul, David is actually following what Paul tells us in Romans 12. But there's a little caveat here. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never get revenge yourself but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And most commentators say, the idea here is not that you heap burning coals on his head to get even, you, you heap burning coals on his head and he will be convicted of his sin and repent. But, but notice, the point is this. Don't you seek vengeance on your own. Hand it over to God. Now, this is important because a lot of people who struggle with bitterness find it hard to let go of their past hurts. Because the thinking is this, if, if I am a good, nice Christian and just let go of the harm that's been done to me, there'll be no justice in the universe. So I'm going to hold on. This verse isn't saying just let go. It's saying don't take it into your own hands and hand it over to the perfectly just judge of the universe who can do a far better job than you can of getting even. Okay? So if you struggle 
with bitterness and unforgiveness. Have you ever handed it over to God? All sin will eventually be dealt with in one of two places. In hell or on the cross. Right? That is, that is why there needs to be a cross. For you to be forgiven, God can't just blink. He's a perfectly just God and the just penalty needed to be paid. All of your sin, hopefully, if you're a believer, is dealt with on the cross. And the sin that was done against you will be dealt with either on the cross if they repent or in hell. But it's much better to hand that over to God. Let him deal with it. Why should you be enslaved to it? You've got better things to do. Okay? You know, um, Saul, the king before David, was crazy. And he tried to kill David several times. And there's a couple of times when David... You know, there's a, there's a situation where David's hiding in a cave and Saul comes in to relieve himself. Okay? And David sneaks up on him. His men are going, go get him, go get him. And he takes a knife and he's conscious stricken and he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. And then he feels bad that he did that. And, and he says to himself, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. If Saul's going to die, God can do it. I'm not going to do it. And a few days later, Saul dies in battle against the, uh, the Philistines. Remember uh, last week, we saw that David was being pursued by his own son, Absalom. And rather than fight, David flees. You know what happens to Absalom? Absalom was kind of like Fabio. He had all this beautiful hair. You know. And uh, he was riding on his donkey through the... This is donkey week. Uh, he was riding on his donkey through the forest and his hair gets caught in a tree. And he's hanging there. And Joab, David's right-hand military guy, sees him and he takes three javelins and stabs them through his heart. But David said, I'm not going to take vengeance into my own hands. I'm going I'm to ask God. And God took care of him. Right. All right, let's, let's ask a third question. Oh, by, by the way, let me say this. So Paul, who says, don't take vengeance into your own hand. Give it to God. Give it to God. This is the same Paul who wrote this, and, and much, of the, much of the pain Paul experienced was from the hands of unbelieving Jews. All right? So in, in one breath, he says, hand vengeance over to God. In the next breath, he says this in Romans 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
they persecuted me. They're trying to kill me. I hand them over to God. God, you take vengeance at your discretion. Meanwhile, at the same time, my heart breaks, and I would be willing to go to hell if that were possible in their place, if they could be saved. So you go, this is complicated. This is a fine balance here. Yeah, yes, yes. Okay. All right, let, let me uh, ask another question. All right. Speaking of wrath hanging over our heads, how do I flee from the wrath to come? John the Baptist said, Therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What does it mean to flee from the wrath to come? Well, John, John's message was this. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that's John's message. And then in chapter 4 of Matthew, we're told Jesus' message was this. From that time, Jesus began preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Later on, Jesus teaches this in Luke. No, I tell you. So he, he said, uh, a tower fell on some people and killed them. He says, do you think they were worse sinners than all the other people milling about? And he goes, no. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Are you getting the theme here? Repent, repent, repent. The apostle Paul, or Peter, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he says, you know, you killed your Messiah. And they, they were cut to the heart, and they said, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you. And then Paul goes to Athens, and he preaches to the Athenians, and he says, the time of ignorance, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. What is, what is repentance? Here's what repentance is. Repentance is a supernatural, all right, so this is not just a natural thing you do. It's a supernatural change of mind that results in a radical change of life. It's a supernatural change of mind, which really becomes a change of heart, which eventually leads to a change of life. It's the prodigal son who walks away from his father, thinks that he's going to find fulfillment in the things of the world, and then in the parable Jesus says, when he came to his senses, that's when he turns. He turns, he turns from running away from his father to now walking toward his father. Okay? To flee from the wrath to come means we admit we're sinners and rather than continuing to live apart from Jesus, we turn to Jesus who took our wrath upon himself on the cross and we trust him. Now, repentance is not saying, well, I'm going to clean up my act in an effort to earn salvation. 
It's a change of mind and a change of heart that trusts him. And of course it will then lead to a change of life. Have you ever heard the story? There was a, a Swedish inventor named Alfred. And in 1888, uh, he invented dynamite. In 1888, after he had done this, he opened the newspaper, thought he was going to read his brother Ludwig's obituary. But the reporter got it mixed up, and they said that he had died. So he's alive, but he's reading his own obituary. And the title was, Merchant of Death is Dead. Right? The newspaper reporter in Paris had made a careless journalistic error and cited the death of the wrong brother. Alfred was reading his own obituary rather than his brother's. Although he had made a fortune from explosives, he realized he had truly been, uh, if he had been the one who had died, he would be remembered as the merchant of death and destruction. He was disappointed. Okay, so here's this change, this radical change. He, he was disappointed with how he would be remembered and resolved to make clear to the world the true meaning and purpose of life. Alfred would only live eight more years, but his last will and testament requested that his fortune of millions and millions of dollars be used to create an endowment for a series of prizes for those contributors who benefited mankind most. The result is the Nobel Peace Prize. The man was Alfred Nobel. Right? His change of mind led to a change of heart, which led to a change of life. Okay. What does it mean to repent? Okay. Rep repentance is, I realize I, I have been ignoring God. I've been living for myself I turn away from that and I turn to Jesus who died for me and I embrace him. I trust him. I love him. Okay? Now what happens, okay? What happens when I flee to Jesus? And let me let me go to Romans again, okay? This is what happens. The moment you trust in him, if it's real, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, what does it mean to be justified? It means your sin is paid for on the cross, and it means his perfect righteous record is given to you, and you are declared perfect. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We, you know, but before, this is just a bunch of religious talk. It didn't make any sense. When you go through that tunnel of conviction, God sharpens your focus and you realize all that matters is knowing that I'm right with God. 
All the riches in the world, all the pleasures of the world mean nothing. What matters most is that I know I'm right with God and there is no condemnation. Let me close with uh, the story of Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus is a, a, a little a tax collector. He's short. We're told he was short in the story. And he hears that Jesus is coming to town. He can't see him, so he climbs up in a tree. Sycamore tree. Why, why was it a sycamore tree? Because that's what it was. Okay. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. I'm doing lunch at your house. Okay. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Now, we're not told what they talked about, but through this time together, a change comes over Zacchaeus when he meets Jesus. Verse 7, and, and uh, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. They're grumbling at Jesus. And Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold, which is what the law required. So he's pretty much down to nothing now. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to his house, or to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now don't, don't misread this. This is not saying he gave all his money away and that made him a Christian. What it's saying is he trusted in Jesus there was a radical change of mind and a change of heart, and that even led him to saying, I don't really care about money anymore. The giving of the money is not what earned salvation. It's what showed that salvation had overcome this man. He had repented, and now his greatest joy was not his money, but Jesus. Right? So we're going to transition into communion right now. And those people who say, I'm not so sure I buy all this stuff about the wrath of God. I'm a Christian, but I don't buy the wrath of God. What's going on on the cross? As we look at the cross. What do you see? You know, in, um, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah actually describes the graphicness of the cross more than the New Testament does. And the New Testament says, and they crucified him. But this is what Isaiah writes about. Isaiah, not 53, but 52. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And as you look at the cross and you say, is that, is that even a man? He's so mangled and bloodied. What does that tell you? Two things. One, 
God is wrathful toward our sin because he is taking the wrath we deserve. But the second thing it tells you is God is loving because it's him on the cross, not us. The cross reveals the love and the justice of God. 